Book Two, Chapter Two of A Voyage Towards the South Pole and Round the World, Volume One by James Cook. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by David Cole. Book Two, Chapter Two. The Arrival of the Ships at Amsterdam. A Description of a Place of Worship and an account of the incidents which happened while we remained at that island. 1773 October As soon as I was on board we made sail down to Amsterdam. The people of this isle were so little afraid of us that some met us in three canoes about midway between the two isles. They used their utmost efforts to get on board, but without effect, as we did not shorten sail for them, and the rope which we gave them broke. They then attempted to board the adventure, and met with the same disappointment. We ran along the southwest coast of Amsterdam at half a mile from shore, on which the sea broke in a great surf. We had an opportunity, by the help of our glasses, to view the face of the island, every part of which seemed to be laid out in plantations. We observed the natives running along the shore, displaying small white flags, which we took for ensigns of peace, and answered them by hoisting a St. George's ensign. Three men belonging to Middleburg, who, by some means or other, had been left on board the adventure, now quitted her and swam to the shore, not knowing that we intended to stop at this isle, and having no inclination, as may be supposed, to go away with us. As soon as we opened the west side of the isle, we were met by several canoes, each conducted by three or four men. They came boldly alongside, presented us with some yava root, and then came on board without further ceremony, inviting us, by all the friendly signs they could make, to go to their island, and pointing to the place where we should anchor. At least we so understood them. After a few boards we anchored in Van Diemen's Road, in eighteen fathoms water, little more than a cable's length from the breakers, which line the coast. We carried out the coasting anchor and cable to seaward, to keep the ship from tailing on the rocks, in case of a shift of wind or a calm. This last anchor lay in forty-seven fathoms water, so steep was the bank on which we anchored. By this time we were crowded with people. Some came off in canoes and others swam, but like those of the other isle brought nothing with them but cloth, matting, etc., for which the seamen only bartered away their clothes. As it was probable they would soon feel the effects of this kind of traffic, with a view to put a stop to it and to obtain the necessary refreshments, I gave orders that no sort of curiosities should be purchased by any person whatsoever. The good effect of this order was found in the morning, for, when the natives saw we would purchase nothing but eatables, they brought off bananas and coconuts in abundance, some fowls and pigs, all of which they exchanged for small nails and pieces of cloth. Even old rags of any sort was enough for a pig or a fowl. Matters being thus established and proper persons appointed to trade under the direction of the officers to present disputes, after breakfast I landed, accompanied by Captain Furneaux, Mr. Forster, and several of the officers. 
having along with us a chief or person of some note, whose name was Otago, who had attached himself to me, from the first moment of his coming on board, which was before we anchored. I know not how he came to discover that I was the commander, but certain it is that he was not long on deck before he singled me out from all the gentlemen, making me a present of some cloth and other things he had about him, and as a greater testimony of friendship we now exchanged names, a custom which is practised over Otaheite and the Society Isles. We were lucky, or rather we may thank the natives, for having anchored before a narrow creek in the rocks which line the shore. To this creek we were conducted by my friend Otago, and there we landed dry on the beach and within the breakers, in the face of a vast crowd of people, who received us in the same friendly manner that those of Middleburg had done. As soon as we were landed, all the gentlemen set out into the country, accompanied by some of the natives, but the most of them remained with Captain Furneaux and me, who amused ourselves some time distributing presents amongst them, especially to such as Otago pointed out, which were not many, but who I afterwards found, were of superior rank to himself. At this time, however, he seemed to be the principal person, and to be obeyed as such. After we had spent some time on the beach, as we complained of the heat, Otago immediately conducted and seated us under the shade of a tree, ordering the people to form a circle round us. This they did, and never once attempted to push themselves upon us, like the Otahitans. After sitting here some time, and distributing some presents to those about us, we signified our desire to see the country. The chief immediately took the hint, and conducted us along a lane that led to an open green, on the one side of which was a house of worship, built on a mount that had been raised by the hand of man about sixteen or eighteen feet above the common level. It had an oblong figure, and was enclosed by a wall or parapet of stone, about three feet in height. From this wall the mount rose with a gentle slope, and was covered with a green turf. On the top of it stood the house, which had the same figure as the mount, about twenty feet in length, and fourteen or sixteen broad. As soon as we came before the place, Every one seated himself on the green, about fifty or sixty yards from the front of the house. Presently came three elderly men, who seated themselves between us and it, and began a speech, which I understood to be a prayer, it being wholly directed to the house. This lasted about ten minutes, and then the priests, for such I took them to be, came and sat down along with us when we made them presents of such things as were about us. Having then made signs to them that we wanted to view the premises, my friend Otago immediately got up, and going with us, without showing the least backwardness, gave us full liberty to examine every part of it. In the front were two stone steps leading to the top of the wall. From this the ascent to the house was easy, round which was a fine gravel walk. The house was built in all respects like to their common dwelling-houses, that is, with posts and rafters and covered with palm thatch. The eaves came down within about three feet of the ground, 
which space was filled up with strong matting made of palm leaves as a wall the floor of the house was laid with fine gravel except in the middle where there was an oblong square of blue pebbles raised about six inches higher than the floor at one corner of the house stood an image rudely carved in wood and on one side lay another each about two feet in length i who had no intention to offend either them or their gods did not so much as touch them but asked otago as well as i could if they were iatuas or gods whether he understood me or no i cannot say but he immediately turned them over and over in as rough a manner as he would have done any other log of wood which convinced me that they were not there as representatives of the divinity i was curious to know if the dead were interred there and asked otago several questions relative there too but i was not sure that he understood me at least i did not understand the answers he made well enough to satisfy my inquiries for the reader must know that our first coming among these people we hardly could understand a word they said even my otahethan youth and the man on board the adventure were equally at a loss but more of this by and by before we quitted the house we thought it necessary to make an offering at the altar accordingly we laid down upon the blue pebbles some medals nails and several other things which we had no sooner done than my friend otago took them up and put them in his pocket the stones with which the walls were made that enclosed this mount were some of them nine or ten feet by four and about six inches thick it is difficult to conceive how they can cut such stones out of the coral rocks this mount stood in a kind of grove open only on the side which fronted the high road and the green on which the people were seated at this green or open place was a junction of five roads two or three of which appeared to be very public ones the groves were composed of several sorts of trees among others was the etoa tree as it is called on otahiti of which are made clubs etc and a kind of low palm which is very common in the northern parts of new holland after we had done examining this place of worship which in their language is called afia tuaka we desired to return but instead of conducting us to the waterside as we expected they struck into a road leading into the country this road which was about sixteen feet broad and as level as a bowling green seemed to be a very public one there being many other roads from different parts leading into it all enclosed on each side with neat fences made of reeds and shaded from the scorching sun by fruit trees i thought i was transported into the most fertile plains in europe there was not an inch of waste ground the roads occupied no more space than was absolutely necessary the fences did not take up above four inches each and even this was not wholly lost for in many were planted some useful trees or plants it was everywhere the same change of place altered not the scene nature assisted by a little art nowhere appears in more splendour than at this isle in these delightful walks we met numbers of people 
some travelling down to the ships with their burdens of fruit, others returning back empty. They all gave us the road by turning either to the right or left, and sitting down or standing, with their backs to the fences, till we had passed. At several of the crossroads, or at the meeting of two or more roads, were generally afikatuakas, such as already described, with this difference, the mounts were palisadoed around, instead of a stone wall. At length, after walking several miles, we came to one larger than common, near to which was a large house belonging to an old chief in our company. At this house we were desired to stop, which we accordingly did, and were treated with fruit, etc. We were no sooner seated in the house than the eldest of the priests began a speech or prayer, which was first directed to the Afik Tuka, and then to me, and alternately. When he addressed me he paused at every sentence, till I gave a nod of approbation. I, however, did not understand one single word he said. At times the old gentleman seemed to be at a loss what to say, or perhaps his memory failed him, for, every now and then, he was prompted by one of the other priests who sat by him. Both during this prayer and the former one the people were silent but not attentive. At this last place we made but a short stay. Our guides conducted us down to our boat, and we returned with a targo to our ship for dinner. We had no sooner got on board than an old gentleman came alongside, who, I understood from Otago, was some king or great man. He was accordingly ushered on board, when I presented him with such things as he most valued, being the only method to make him my friend, and seated him at table to dinner. We now saw that he was a man of consequence, for Otago would not sit down and eat before him, but got to the other end of the table, and as the old chief was almost blind he sat there, and ate with his back towards him. After the old man had eaten a bit of fish, and drunk two glasses of wine, he returned ashore. As soon as Otago had seen him out of the ship, he came and took his place at table, finished his dinner, and drank two glasses of wine. When dinner was over we all went ashore, where we found the old chief, who presented me with a hog, and he and some others took a walk with us into the country. Before we set out I happened to go down with Otago to the landing-place, and there found Mr. Wales in a laughable, though distressed, situation. The boats which brought us on shore, not being able to get near the landing-place for want of a sufficient depth of water, he pulled off his shoes and stockings to walk through, and as soon as he got on dry land, he put them down betwixt his legs to put on again, but they were instantly snatched away by a person behind him, who immediately mixed with the crowd. It was impossible for him to follow the man barefooted over the sharp coral rocks which composed the shore, without having his feet cut to pieces. The boat was put back to the ship. His companions had each made his way through the crowd, and he left in this condition alone. Otago soon found out the thief, recovered his shoes and stockings, and set him at liberty. Our route into the country was by the first-mentioned Afietuka, before which we again seated ourselves, 
but had no prayers, although the old priest was with us. Our stay here was but short, the old chief probably thinking that we might want water on board, conducted us to a plantation hard by, and showed us a pool of fresh water, though we had not made the least inquiry after any. I believe this to be the same that Tasman calls the washing-place for the king and his nobles. From hence we were conducted down to the shore of Maria Bay, or northeast side of the isle, where, in the boat-house, was shown to us a fine large double canoe not yet launched. The old chief did not fail to make us sensible it belonged to himself. Night now approaching, we took leave of him, and returned on board, being conducted by a targo down to the water-side. Mr. Forster and his party spent the day in the country botanizing, and several of the officers were out shooting. All of them were very civilly treated by the natives. We had also a brisk trade for bananas, coconuts, yams, pigs, and fowls, all of which were procured for nails and pieces of cloth. A boat from each ship was employed in trading ashore, and bringing off their cargoes as soon as they were laden which was generally in a short time. By this method we got cheaper, and with less trouble, a good quantity of fruit as well as other refreshments, from people who had no canoes to carry them off to the ships. Pretty early in the morning on the 5th, my friend brought me a hog and some fruit, which I gave him a hatchet, a sheet, and some red cloth. The pinnace was sent ashore to trade as usual, but soon returned. The officer informed me that the natives were for taking everything out of the boat, and in other respects were very troublesome. The day before they stole the grappling at the time the boat was riding by it, and carried it off undiscovered. I now judged it necessary to have a guard on shore, to protect the boats and people whose business required their being there, and accordingly sent the marines under the command of Lieutenant Edgecombe. Soon after, I went myself with my friend Otago and Captain Furneaux and several of the gentlemen. At landing we found the chief who presented me with a pig. After this Captain Furneaux and I took a walk into the country with Mr. Hodges to make drawings of such places and things as were most interesting. When this was done we returned on board to dinner with my friend and two other chiefs one of which sent a hog on board the adventure for Captain Furneaux, some hours before, without stipulating for any return, the only instance of this kind. My friend took care to put me in mind of the pig the old king gave me in the morning, for which I now gave a checked shirt and a piece of red cloth. I had tied them up for him to carry ashore, but with this he was not satisfied. He wanted to have them put on him, which was no sooner done than he went on deck, and showed himself to all his countrymen. He had done the same thing in the morning with the sheet I gave him. In the evening we all went on shore again, where we found the old king, who took to himself everything my friend and the others had got. The different trading parties were so successful to-day as to procure for both ships a tolerably good supply of refreshments, in consequence of which I, the next morning, 
gave every one leave to purchase what curiosities and other things they please. After this, it was astonishing to see with what eagerness every one courted everything he saw. It even went so far as to become the ridicule of the natives, who offered pieces of sticks and stones to exchange. One waggish boy took a piece of human excrement on the end of a stick, and held it out to every one he met with. This day a man got into the master's cabin, through the outside scuttle, and took out some books and other things. He was discovered just as he was getting out into his canoe, and pursued by one of our boats, which obliged him to quit the canoe and take to the water. The people in the boat made several attempts to lay hold of him, but he as often dived under the boat, and at last having unshipped the rudder, which rendered her ungovernable, by this means he got clear off. Some other very daring thefts were committed at the landing-place. One fellow took a seaman's jacket out of the boat and carried it off, in spite of all that our people in her could do. Till he was both pursued and fired at by them, he would not part with it, nor would he have done it then, had not his landing been intercepted by some of us who were on shore. The rest of the natives, who were very numerous, took very little notice of the whole transaction, nor were they the least alarmed when the man was fired at. My friend Otago, having visited me again next morning as usual, brought with him a, a hog, and assisted me in purchasing several more. Afterwards we went ashore, visited the old king with whom we stayed till noon, then returned on board to dinner with Otago, who never once left me. Intending to sail next morning, I made up a present for the old king, and carried it on shore in the evening. As soon as I landed I was told by the officers who were on shore that a far greater man than any we had yet seen was come to pay us a visit. Mr. Pickersgill informed me that he had seen him in the country, and found that he was a man of some consequence, by the extraordinary respect paid him by the people. Some, when they approached him, fell on their faces, and put their head between their feet, and no one durst pass him without permission. Mr. Pickersgill, and another of the gentlemen, took hold of his arms, and conducted him down to the landing-place where I found him seated with so much sullen and stupid gravity, that notwithstanding what had been told me, I really took him for an idiot, whom the people, from some superstitious notions, were ready to worship. I saluted and spoke to him, but he neither answered nor took the least notice of me, nor did he alter a single feature of his countenance. This confirmed me in my opinion, and I was just going to leave him, when one of the natives, an intelligent youth, undertook to undeceive me, which he did in such a manner as left me no room to doubt that he was the king, or principal man on the island. Accordingly I made him the presents I intended for the old chief, which consisted of a shirt and axe, a piece of red cloth, a looking-glass, some nails, medals, and beads. He received these things, or rather suffered them to be put upon him, and laid down by him, without losing a bit of his gravity, speaking one word, 
or turning his head either to the right or left, sitting the whole time like a statue, in which situation I left him to return on board, and he soon after retired. I had not been long on board before word was brought me that a quantity of provisions had come from this chief. A boat was sent to bring it from the shore, and it consisted of about twenty baskets of roasted bananos, sour bread and yams, and a roasted pig of about twenty pounds weight. Mr. Edgecombe and his party were just re-embarking, when these were brought to the water-side, and the bearer said it was a present from the Ariki, that is, the king of the island, to the Ariki of the ship. After this I was no longer to doubt the dignity of this sullen chief. Early in the morning of the seventh, while the ships were unmooring, I went ashore with Captain Furneaux and Mr. Forster, in order to make some return to the king for the, his last night's present. We no sooner landed than we found Otago, of whom we inquired for the king, whose name was Kohaji To Falangu. He accordingly undertook to conduct us to him, but whether he mistook the man we wanted, or was ignorant where he was, I know not. Certain it is that he took us a wrong road, in which he had not gone far before he stopped, and after some little conversation between him and another man, we returned back, and presently after the king appeared, with very few attendants. As soon as Otago saw him coming, he sat down under a tree and desired us to do the same. The king seated himself on a rising ground, about twelve or fifteen yards from us. Here we sat facing one another for some minutes. I waited for Otago to show us the way, but seeing he did not rise, Captain Furneaux and I got up, went and saluted the king, and sat down by him. We then presented him with a white shirt, which we put on his back, a few yards of red cloth, a brass kettle, a saw, two large spikes, three looking-glasses, a dozen of medals, and some strings of beads. All this time he sat with the same sullen, stupid gravity as the day before. He even did not seem to see or know what we were about. His arms appeared immovable at his sides. He did not so much as raise them when we put on the shirt. I told him, both by words and signs, that we were going to leave his island. He scarcely made the least answer to this, or any other thing we either said or did. We therefore got up and took leave, but I yet remained near him to observe his actions. Soon after he entered into conversation with a Targo and an old woman, whom we took to be his mother. I did not understand any part of the conversation. It, however, made him laugh, in spite of his assumed gravity. I say assumed because it exceeded everything of the kind I ever saw, and therefore think it could not be his real disposition, unless he was an idiot, indeed as these islanders, like all the others we had lately visited, have a great deal of levity, and he was in the prime of life. At last he rose up, and retired with his mother and two or three more. Otago conducted us to another circle, 
where were seated the aged chief and several respectable old persons of both sexes, among whom was the priest, who was generally in company with his chief. We observed that his reverend father could walk very well in a morning, but in the evening was obliged to be led home by two people. By this we concluded that the juice of the pepper-root had the same effect upon him that wine and other strong liquors have on Europeans who drink a large portion of them. It is very certain that these old people seldom sat down without preparing a bowl of this liquor, which is done in the same manner as at Ulitia. We, however, must do them the justice to believe that it was meant to treat us. Nevertheless, the greatest part, if not the whole, generally fell to their share. I was not well prepared to take leave of this chief, having exhausted almost all our store on the other. However, after rummaging our pockets and treasury bag, which was always carried with me wherever I went, we made up a tolerable present, both for him and his friends. This old chief had an air of dignity about him that commanded respect, which the other had not. He was grave but not sullen, would crack a joke, talk on indifferent subjects, and endeavour to understand us and be understood himself. During this visit the old priest repeated a short prayer or speech, the purport of which we did not understand. Indeed he would frequently at other times break out in prayer, but I never saw any attention paid to him by any one present. After a stay of near two hours we took leave and returned on board, with Otago and two or three more friends, who stayed and breakfasted with us, after which they were dismissed, loaded with presents. Otago was very importunate with me to return again to this isle, and bring with me cloth, axes, nails, etc., etc., telling me that I should have hogs, fowls, fruit and roots in abundance. He particularly desired me, more than once, to bring him such a suit of clothes as I had on, which was my uniform. This good-natured islander was very serviceable to me on many occasions during our short stay. He constantly came on board every morning soon after it was light, and never quitted us till the evening. He was always ready, either on board or on shore, to do me all the service in his power. His fidelity was rewarded at a small expense, and I find my account in having such a friend. In heaving in the coasting cable it parted in the middle of its length, being chafed by the rocks. By this accident we lost the other half, together with the anchor which lay in forty fathoms water, without any buoy to it. The best bower cable suffered also by the rocks, by which a judgment may be formed of this anchorage. At ten o'clock we got under sail, but as our decks were much encumbered with fruit, etc., we kept plying under the land till they were cleared. The supplies we got at this isle were about one hundred and fifty pigs, twice that number of fowls, as many bananos and coconuts as we could find room for, with a few yams, and had our stay been longer, we no doubt might have got a great deal more. This in some degree shows the fertility of the island, of which, together with the neighbouring one of Middleburg, I shall now give a more particular account. 
End of Book Two, Chapter Two. Recording by David Cole, Medway, Massachusetts.